my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco DeLeon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Molly White. Survivorship bias is the tendency to focus on success stories and ignore failures. A common example is saying how appliances were made better when our grandparents were young because grandma still has that old crock pot but we aren't considering the hundreds of other appliances that she owned and that failed. There's also a survivorship bias in the finance space. For example, we're likely to hear news reports of investors that do well and multiply their money over the ones that fail. I'm sure over the last few years, you've heard your fair share of folks that made it big from investing in crypto. But for every newly minted crypto multimillionaire, there are countless that lose every penny they put in. This week, I spoke to Molly White about her work as being one of the most vocal crypto, Web3, and decentralized finance critics. She's also been encouraging folks to cool down our expectations of the ways that AI will supposedly revolutionize the way we live and work. Ultimately, Molly's work is to help us all resist the false financial allure of big tech and its promises of getting rich quick. Please enjoy my conversation with Molly. 
Well, Molly White, I am thrilled and excited. And you can, I'm sure you could feel the fangirl energy coming through this recording right now. I'm very excited to chat with you today. So thank you so much for coming on Weird Finance to educate the normies about all things tech. Thanks. Happy to be here. So over the last couple of years, you've become one of the most vocal critics of Web3, crypto, decentralized finance, also known as DeFi. And as of late, AI, uh, one of your most entertaining projects is Web3 is going just great. And so reading your work has been really helpful in, in clarifying my own skepticism towards all of this technology. So first, I just want to thank you for that. Uh, but it's also so entertaining watching tech bros get super butthurt uh, when you highlight all the scams <laughs> and all of the the failures of Web3 and crypto projects. So my first question for you is a two-parter. It is, what is it that made you start writing critically about all these topics in the first place? And what is it that you want to accomplish with your work? So I think I started writing about this because I was really frustrated um, so I was working in tech at the time. I was a web software engineer and I was hearing all this talk about this idea of web three that was going to revolutionize how we develop the web and how everyone interacts with each other and finance and, you know, the society in general. But when I was actually trying to look into it and understand what it was, that it felt like there was a really huge disconnect between the promises that were being made and the actual reality of it. It seemed like in reality, a lot of people were being taken for a ride. You know, they were losing tons of money that they were being told was, you know, a good investment that was going to change their financial future. And it felt to me like that wasn't adequately being captured by the media or, you know, people who I thought ought to be talking about it. And so, you know, I figured, well, you know, I'm frustrated and I can make a website, so maybe I'll just give it a shot myself. Um, and I think, you know, I've sort of accomplished my goals in educating people about how these promises are really not being met. So, you know, as much as I can continue to keep doing that and, and showing people that the so-called Web3 and crypto promises are really, you know, not achieving um, or not being met in reality, I think is is important because it helps people understand that, you know, a lot of this is just hype and buzz and, and you know, trying to separate people from their money rather than, you know, these altruistic people hoping to give people a leg up out of a financial circumstance they're trying to change. Okay, so from your opinion, the I think that's also what's bothered me when I when I look at crypto especially. And DeFi is like the narrative is really nice. Like decentralizing in theory seems like a good idea. And they make all these arguments that they're a great idea. But then literally when I try to use a wallet, because uh, I wanted to experience it, right? I want to know what it's like to buy something with the wallet. I, I bought the wrong thing. Like there was no help desk, right? I lost money and I couldn't ask anyone about it. So yeah, it's been really interesting watching those two opposing the narrative versus the reality of it. And do you think that that's, is it, is it a scam right from the jump or are these, is it like the path to hell is paved with good intentions? 
I think it's somewhat of a mix. I think a lot of people are taking advantage of the crypto world and all of this uh, enthusiasm for, you know, what people are saying is a very revolutionary technology and using that to run, you know, age old scams. There's Ponzi schemes, you know, there's all kinds of fraud and manipulation that is, you know, hundreds of years old, really, but is just using a new technology. Got it. But on the other hand, I think there are also, you know, I think there are people who come into the crypto world with good intentions and are not trying to absolutely fleece everybody. But because of some of the limitations of the technology, things go wrong a lot in the crypto world and people lose a ton of money just because of that. You know, as a software engineer, I know how challenging it is to write perfect software. You know, every software engineer has written, you know, tons of bugs in their life. And the fact that you need to write perfect software in crypto or you run the risk of everyone losing everything, I think is really just a poor foundation for a financial industry. That's fascinating. I had never heard it put like that before. So I appreciate that, Molly. (laughs) Okay, before we go any further, I would love it if you could just walk us through some of these terms that we're using and I'm a normie and my listeners are normies. And if you're listening right now and you're like, what is a normie even? (laughs) Uh, That means you're a normie. It means you're like, you know, not not, uh, steeped in the crypto culture. And so if you could, you know, try to walk us through this, like we're all five years old, I would really appreciate that. The first one is, tell me about the idea known as Web3. So I try to really emphasize that Web3 is mostly a marketing term. You know, it's a really shiny idea that, you know, that this web that we have right now that, you know, you're using to talk to your friends online or to access your email account, that's Web2. And that's old and boring and passe and suffers from all of these problems that we know as big tech. Web3 is going to fix all that. That's the promise. Uh, And it has been defined basically as a web that is powered by blockchains, cryptocurrency, everything, you know, in this new uh, crypto world is going to be Web3. It's very aspirational. It's not something that has been really realized yet. You know, the vast majority of Websites and web products that we use have no blockchains. Uh, they're just, you know, pretty bog standard. And so it's really just a promise. It's an aspiration. But it's been very effective at repackaging cryptocurrency and blockchains, which have existed for, you know, 15 years now, and make them shiny again to venture capitalists and to lay people, retail investors who are wondering about whether or not they can get in on the next big phase. Facebook and the next big Amazon. And so, you know, it has sort of a technical definition, but primarily it's being used to make cryptocurrencies and blockchains sound exciting. And I think, you know, it definitely has worked. I think it's cooled down a little bit, but it definitely has worked. Okay, what exactly in your words is cryptocurrency and the blockchain? So I'll start with the blockchain. The blockchain is basically just a type of database. You know, it's a way of storing information. You can sort of think of it as though it is like an Excel spreadsheet and every transaction is an entry in the spreadsheet. It really just records uh, chronological transactions that people are making. But the sort of unique thing about it is that it's stored in this decentralized way, or at least for the majority of blockchain 
blockchains it is. So instead of, you know, Google storing your Google Sheets spreadsheet, it's actually many different computers all sort of contributing towards maintaining this ledger, this spreadsheet. Cryptocurrencies are really just pieces of data that have been given monetary value, you know, social value. Again, just these entries in the spreadsheet as though there was sort of monetary value being recorded in a spreadsheet. But there's no physical dollar, there's no physical gold coin or anything like that. It's really just a digital only representation of value. And the value that is ascribed to a cryptocurrency is primarily social. You know, there is no product behind Bitcoin or, you know, there's no enterprise there really, but enough people have agreed that one Bitcoin is worth however much it's worth today, $25,000 or something like that, probably more like 30. Therefore, that's true. You know, as long as someone's willing to buy it from you for that price, then that's the value that it holds. And so that's sort of the idea behind cryptocurrencies is they're this digital record of value, but there is no central bank. There is no government. They are just, you know, issued by whichever organization has created the cryptocurrency in question. I like that you say that it's a belief system. It's all social currency. And that makes a lot of sense. The way that I've thought about it in my normie brain is Well, there's like a bunch of people who really do trade Pokemon cards or buy Pokemon cards from each other for lots of money. It blows my mind how much money is being exchanged for for Pokemon cards. No disrespect if you you love Pokemon cards and you're a listener. I'm just not a part of that culture. And so do you think that crypto will always have a group of believers in the same way that people will always part with five figures for a particular Pokemon card? (laughs) I think so. I mean, it doesn't take that many people to keep the belief alive. You know, as long as there's one person willing to buy your Bitcoin from you, then that's how much it's worth. And so, you know, I think that, yes, there probably will be people who continue to believe that cryptocurrencies are the future or, you know, the the, uh, superior way of representing value. Um, The question, I think, for me is to what extent will that be accepted by the broader you know, society, financial institutions, governments, et cetera, um, because, you know, that's where people start to actually, um, you know, it starts to actually be an important issue. I think if there were just a handful of people trading Bitcoins among each other and that was sort of as far as it went, no one would really care about it as much as they do today. But it is this idea that, you know, it is broadly important and needs to be adopted by, you know, the world at large, I think that makes it sort of a pressing issue. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Frankly, Molly, I find this to be boring. I don't think the blockchain <laughs> is particularly interesting. Like you said, it's like an Excel spreadsheet. Who the fuck cares? I just, and and also, you know, from a purely financial perspective, like looking at it from a person with a finance degree, it's like, okay, it's some weird alternative asset. Why do we care? Why are all these people talking about it? Why are my friends who are artists talking about it, you know, why, why has this become a (laughs) cultural moment? 
Why do you think that is? No, I think that's a really good observation. I mean, I think for a while, cryptocurrency was really boring. It was fringe. It was something that only sort of tech nerds and, you know, financial speculators cared about. I remember hearing about it when I was in college in, you know, the early 2010s, you know, in the in the fairly early days of cryptocurrency and thinking, oh, that's cool. And then just sort of going back to my life because I was not interested in financial speculation or in a lot of the actual technological portions of it. But I started to care a lot more in the last couple of years because that's when things, I think, really shifted. You know, cryptocurrency has been gradually, I think, entering the mainstream even before the past couple of years. But there was definitely a moment in 2020, 2021, when suddenly it was every everywhere. You know, you were seeing it in headlines. There were ads at the Super Bowl. There was you know, all of this talk on social media and people started to really wonder, you know, is this, am I missing out? Do I need to start putting my money into this? And that's when I started to really care about it because it seemed like people who, you know, were otherwise not prone to risky financial speculation, who are otherwise fairly level-headed about, you know, hype and all of these huge inflated promises, we're starting to think that, oh, you know, I need to get in on this because everyone else is doing it, because celebrities are telling me to do it, because I'm reading about it in the newspaper as though it's this next big thing. And I think it was really a, you know, a successful marketing campaign on behalf of the cryptocurrency industry. You know, they were able to get this moment and, you know, get you know, your grandma, your uncle saying, hey, is Bitcoin actually something I should be putting in my investment portfolio or or whatever it might be? And I think that it was a combination of a, a couple of things that really led to that. For one, I think the pandemic had a lot to do with it. You know, there was sort of a lot of extra money sloshing around through pandemic financial programs. Uh, some people had stimulus money that they weren't expecting that they, you know, decided they could you know, spare to put into something risky. But at the same time, I think people have been feeling a lot of financial stress as well. So, you know, in the when the pandemic was first happening, people were facing a lot of job uncertainties and people lost their jobs. Broadly speaking, not only with the pandemic, but there's a lot of insecurity around student loans, housing, you know, cost of living, things like that. And people are feeling kind of desperate, I think. And so when they were greeted with this you know, marketing campaign that says you can become a millionaire overnight like this guy, you know, pick the right token and you too can be driving a Lambo. Uh, I think people were susceptible to that because, you know, they didn't necessarily have another choice. Interest rates were really low. So they felt like, you know, oh, I can't necessarily make the returns that I need from, you know, a standard investment or a savings account. So, you know, let's give it a shot. I'm going to try something new. Do you have people that email you and and tell you about the ways that they've been screwed over by coins and tokens that they thought were going to be the future? Yeah, all the time. I get emails from people pretty constantly that say, hey, you know, this thing looks like a scam. Did I lose all my money? And a lot of the time, yeah, they did. Or, you know, I read a lot online from people who have, you know, put money into these various programs, cryptocurrency companies that have since gone bankrupt, and they're now, you know, waiting to hopefully receive some of their money back after bankruptcy proceedings complete, which could be years. And, you know, a lot of people really got taken for a ride, I think, by the industry as a whole. Man, that is rough. It is. That must be a a little bit of a bummer to get those emails all the time. 
It is. And, you know, a lot of them are looking for help. And, you know, I don't necessarily have the the time or the resources to help them. You know, I can say, yeah, that does look like a scam. But, you know, that's kind of as far as it can go most of the time. And, you know, people often have lost money that they really can't afford to lose. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey, Charlie, did you see that photo of my friend on Instagram? She's on a boat and it looks like they just docked on some faraway island. Yeah, I saw it. It looks like she's living the dream. I know, right? I wish I had her life. Wait a minute. What makes you think her life is perfect? Just because she's on vacation doesn't mean she doesn't have problems or financial struggles. What do you mean? Are you saying that what people portray online might not be their reality? Exactly, Alex. Just because someone posts a picture of themselves on vacation or with lots of material possessions, it doesn't mean they're living the high life. They might be in debt or relying on their family's wealth to maintain their lifestyle. It's important not to compare ourselves to others and believe everything we see on social media. Oh, I never thought about it that way. 
Now that I think about it, your friend is pretty thirsty, and it's pretty cringe, actually. Hey, thanks for the perspective, Charlie. <laughs> now I know. And knowing is half the battle. Weird Finance. Weird Do you think that we're going to kind of see this surge and we're probably seeing it already because I've seen a lot of these commercials like during sporting events, but removing gambling online seems to be like the next great piece of technology that is making it way too easy for people to lose their money. Do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, online gambling is nothing terribly new, but the regulations around it have been changing to some extent. And we've been seeing that as far as, you know, where they're allowed to advertise, who they're allowed to advertise to, who's allowed to, you know, engage with these businesses online. And cryptocurrency absolutely plays a part in it as well, because online gambling is regulated to some extent, but there are these crypto casinos that don't necessarily require you to connect your bank account or send them real dollars through a payment processor. And so they manage to evade a lot of the same regulations that should apply to online gambling. But yes, I think that, you know, we have been seeing this real surge in online gambling in a lot of activities that are very similar to gambling. So, you know, if you look at the Robin Hood craze, which again was sort of a pandemic phenomenon, people were becoming day traders. You know, they were taking on this very complex and challenging role as an options trader, which, you know, most people are really not qualified to do. I certainly am not. And, you know, that I think was very similar to gambling as well. We were seeing this Wall Street bets phenomenon, which even says, you know, look at the name, it's very gambling adjacent. And people were, you know, sort of masking it as though they were traders, which is, you know, a very sort of buttoned up way of putting it. But the behavior was absolutely like gambling. And I think the same can be said for cryptocurrency as well. Yeah, there was also the like stick it to the man energy that it felt awesome, though, like when you went into the Reddit thread and you read it, it, you know, the vibe was cool, but definitely the fundamentals were off. Yes, <laughs> that's the case for cryptocurrency as well. There's a lot of, you know, the government shouldn't have any role in our financial system. You know, we're getting screwed over by all these big banks and financial institutions. Let's take it into our own hands, you know, set up these decentralized finance systems, use cryptocurrencies, which operate outside of the bounds of government control, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those promises are very inflated and not necessarily accurate. And a lot of people end up losing a lot of money while they, you know, are being told that this is empowering and, you know, the next big um, financial opportunity for them. So, you know, I think, I think people really weaponize that particular impulse in people for their own benefit. You know, it's also interesting too, is like the immutable ledger aspect of it seems gnarly because if somebody figures out what your wallet code is or whatever, then they can see all your transactions, which is the opposite, I think, of some of these arguments about not decentralization, but anonymity, right? Or like not ha not having the government... I'm able to track how you spend your money and things like that. So it, it just feels like it's all full of contradictions, which maybe that's life, right? 
<laughs> no, I think you're right. I mean, people will try to simultaneously describe blockchains as very anonymous and privacy preserving, while at the same time acknowledging that if someone knows what your public crypto wallet address is, they can see every transaction you've ever made. And those two things, I think, are very hard to square. Uh, I think the cryptocurrency world has been an absolute gift to financial investigators. You know, I've been to conferences and things like that where there are government folks, you know, there are basically law enforcement or financial regulators, and they start talking about cryptocurrencies. And the the mood in those rooms has really changed, I think. You know, at first, they were really worried about the potential for cryptocurrency to be used in crime, to evade sanctions, you know, those types of things. But in more recent times, I hear them talking about it, and it's a gift to them because it's traceable. You know, they have tools that allow them to make connections between crypto wallet addresses that are, you know, that would be challenging to make with just the human eye. And they're able to see, you know, the entire transaction history of various people that they're investigating. And they don't even need a warrant because it's all public. Wow. <laughs> I think that a lot of it's being really oversold by by people who say, oh, this is so private. You don't have to worry about a bank spying on you. It's like, no, you don't, I guess, because everyone can spy on you now. <laughs> Uh, technically true, right? <laughs> I want to shift the conversation now and talk about the new bubble, the new hype. You know, I'm here in Los Angeles and we have the rider strike and the SAG strike happening simultaneously. It seems like hot labor strike summer, frankly, right now. But with particularly with SAG and the, and the riders, AI is just top of mind, right? So I just, I'd love to know your opinion with AI, you know, at least for me, I can understand the use case of AI versus blockchain. Um, do you think it's completely overhyped or is it going to be revolutionary? <laughs> so I think there are a lot of parallels between the sort of moment that we're having right now with AI and the moment that we were having a couple of years ago with crypto and Web3. A lot of this is smoke and mirrors. A lot of this is hype. And people are recognizing that you can use this veneer of sort of the technological mystique to get a lot of people excited. You can use some big fancy words around language models and the machine learning and artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence. You know, you can talk about these huge promises where no one's going to have to work anymore and, you know, all of these decisions will be made by AIs or, you know, AI will cure cancer or whatever it might be. Huge, huge promises that are not at the moment particularly achievable with the technology that we have. And you can convince people to put a lot of money into the ecosystem, you know, venture capital is pouring money in right now, like they were a couple of years ago to the crypto world. Lay people are trying to understand if they should be investing in public companies that are getting involved in AI. Public companies are feeling the pressure to, you know, put resources towards AI so they can sound like they're keeping up. So there is a lot of that same hype that we were seeing years ago. And we're seeing the same failures, I think, in media to really take a critical look at it, to ask people who have the ability to understand this stuff and ask them, you know, is this actually true? Is this reasonable? Or is this all just marketing PR fluff? But I think it does differ to some extent from the crypto moment as well, because artificial intelligence 
exists. You know, it's used in a very useful way in our day to day. You know, a lot of services that we use today incorporate artificial intelligence and machine learning to some extent. There have been technological strides in the past couple of years, although I think the majority of those strides are primarily with the volume of data that's being uh, used to train these models. But, you know, there is a little bit more there, there, I think, with AI than there was with crypto, where, you know, there have been changes, there have been use cases, you know, there have been ways that people's day-to-day lives have been changed and even improved thanks to AI. So it's not quite as, uh, you know, complete bubble, I guess, as crypto was. But I do still have a lot of criticisms for, you know, the way that the industry is presenting itself and the way that media is presenting AI, because there is just this constant impulse to hype things up, to talk about how this is the next huge thing and everyone's lives are going to be completely different. And, you know, a lot of the time those promises end up being fairly empty. You know, the thing with technology is there's again the path to hell is paved with good intentions like email is cool and everything but it just means that now i have to do a lot more work than i did without email and social media (laughs) is cool and everything but i think it has played a major role in dividing our society and spreading misinformation do you think that that's the nature of technology like there's always going to be this yin and yang or is it the way that we are unleashing it onto society that, you know, I, it sounds like everything is just half-baked and it's pushed out and there's not a lot of foresight in how the technology unleashed on society will impact society? Like, what what is your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that we as a society have generally viewed technology as a very positive thing and something that is only good. And I think more recently, people are starting to realize that, you know, there are these unexpected externalities of technology, like the ones you just listed, that we have not properly considered, and that certainly were not well considered when the technology was being developed and rolled out. I think we desperately need more criticism in the technology world and more sort of critical thought around how technologies are being deployed, who is deploying them, who controls them, who profits from them, because we're seeing how negative these supposedly purely good technologies can really be. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see with AI. We're already beginning to see it where you know, AI has absolutely enabled some wonderful things. There's there's no uh, denying that. But we're also seeing the negatives where, you know, there's this invisible labor going into training these models where, you know, people who are very poorly played are being traumatized by the data that they're having to consume to train these models. We're seeing how AI is being misused by corporations to surveil their workers and to, you know, try to squeeze more labor out of them without necessarily any increase in pay. You know, there are all of these negatives that are really coming along with the technology. And I think a lot of it has to do with how that technology is being deployed. You know, people talk about technology as being this sort of apolitical thing and it's, oh, it's just code. There's no 
you know, politics and code, but it's really something that you cannot divorce from the societal impacts and the way that it's being used because people will use code for good and for bad. And so we need to really acknowledge that and, you know, come out in front of it, I think. Do you use AI, Molly White? <laughs> I don't necessarily in the sort of way that people talk about AI today. You know, I'm not using chat GPT to try to write my newsletter or anything like that. But I think everyone uses AI in ways that they don't necessarily recognize. You know, if you're using Google Maps to go somewhere, you know, or if you're using autocorrect or, you know, your Gmail is suggesting uh completions for you, things like that. You know, I use like any other person, but uh, I'm not, you know, generating AI images or anything like that with the sort of more recent stuff, just because I have ethical concerns around the way that that those technologies are being trained and the data that's being consumed for them. I asked ChatGPT before our conversation if they were familiar, if it was familiar with your work, and it said that it wasn't. And I was really surprised by that. And I, I thought it was going to maybe be funny to have a back and forth about uh, ethical concerns uh, about artificial intelligence with the artificial intelligence with the language model. <laughs> yeah, a lot of those language models cut off, you know, the training data cuts off at 2019, 2020, something like that. And so I was not terribly prominent before that. And they don't necessarily know about me. But I did one time see a Wikipedia article that was written about me using chat GPT that said I was married with two kids, which is news to me. Wow. <laughs> So bold, this language model. <laughs> okay, wait, can we go back to the, the SAG writers strike? Do you really believe, like, is it possible that the executives are going to put in the contract that AI will be used? It, that just seems so out of this world. I feel like I'm living in an alternate reality. Tell me your thoughts. I mean, I think it's absolutely possible. I think they would love to do that. The question is, will we as a society, you know, as unionized workforce, allow that to happen? I think I think that's the really big question, because, you know, people who are in charge of these companies, I think, will constantly try to push the envelope and, you know, exploit workers as much as they can. And the question is, to what extent do we allow that when it comes to regulations, when it comes to collective bargaining? I am hopeful that, you know, the unionization that we've been seeing and the the labor strikes that we've been seeing will be effective in pushing back against that. And I think, if anything, it absolutely underscores how desperately we need labor unions and that type of collective action, not just in the you know writing industry or in the uh, television and film industry, but throughout all industries. Amen to that. I definitely co-sign on that. <laughs> okay. The question I want to ask you is when I was reading your Wikipedia page, it says, according to your Wikipedia page, when you first started writing, you wrote on Wikipedia about your favorite emo bands. So <laughs> who are some of your favorite emo bands that you wrote about? And are you still a fan of emo today? Well, I think that my Wikipedia article maybe miscategorizes some of the bands that I was writing about because at the time I think I was writing about Disturbed, oh, okay. which nobody would necessarily yeah. describe as an emo band. But I think Evanescence was in there, which maybe someone could make the argument that they're emo. I do still love emo and also Evanescence and Disturbed to some extent. Amazing. Uh, so yes. <laughs> Amazing. You made a controversial statement on a podcast where you said, quote, I mean, I would probably argue that venture capitalists are not good for society regardless of what they're investing in, end quote. I would love for you to just expand on that statement. 
<laughs> I stand by it, uh, despite how angry some venture capitalists were about it. I think the venture capital model of funding has not necessarily been all that it's cracked up to be. I think we've seen some of the worst excesses of venture capital, especially in the zero interest rate policy era. These funds were just pouring money into projects that had no hope of ever realizing whatever it was that they were promising and that were promising things that were not necessarily that compelling or beneficial to society. People talk about venture capital as though it is sort of the only way that we can progress technologically or improve as a society. And I think we really need to challenge that because I think the incentives in the venture capital industry are very twisted and focus far more around enriching the partners in the venture capital firm as well as the investors in those funds rather than actually providing something that is societally beneficial uh, or, you know, actually innovative. We just see these schemes that are designed to, you know, wring as much money out of whichever industry they might be in, uh, entering into and not necessarily actually providing anything of value. And I think cryptocurrency actually really underscored that where we saw venture capital firms investing in these different cryptocurrency projects, which would then sell tokens to retail investors, which allowed venture capital firms to then immediately cash out and make a huge profit at the expense of the retail investors who then saw the tokens crash down to zero and got nothing really of value for it. That type of behavior is absolutely incentivized by the venture capital model. And, you know, I think we should really go back to the drawing board on this one and wonder, you know, maybe there is a better way to incentivize the type of innovation that we actually really want to be seeing. I appreciate that you're basically saying, yeah, the mechanism for, you know, creating innovation through venture capital is what is corrupted. And I love that you're talking about incentives. I think a good example of, you know, the government investing in something that created progress and then made it easy for, not easy, but easier after all the R&D for um, uh, businesses to move into the space is like space exploration, right? The government invested a bunch of money in that R&D and they really put a lot of energy and, you know, hired the right folks to explore space. And then after, basically, they lost a lot of money doing that. They made a lot of progress. Now these other organizations can come in and for better or for worse, launch people into space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of historical examples of it. You know, the internet in general was a government project to begin with and it was sort of a public good. Uh, and now, you know, it is dominated by venture capital. Is that for the best? You know, do we have the most societally beneficial product at the end of it? I think that's worth exploring. You know what, Molly? I want to take this moment then to turn it into a public service announcement and to tell people, hey, you know, you do have agency in this moment, right? You can look at the ways that you're spending your money and the and like where your where your money goes and choose to divest from these organizations that are funded uh, by VCs. And you can try to find small business owners and ways to divert your cash in investing it more into people and community. So if you're if we're bumming you out, basically, I want to let you know that. In every moment, you have your agency and you have a way that you can make the difference. Okay, Molly, before I let you go, I want to hit you with some personal rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so tell me, is there anything you purchase that feels like maybe to the naked eye, it seems frivolous, but for you feels like money well spent? Yes, I think 
most things to do with my sort of office environment. I put some money into a chair a couple of years ago, and I have not regretted a single cent of that, even though most people would be like, that is a very expensive chair. I spend so much time sitting at my desk that I like my butt to be comfortable (laughs) pretty much. Uh, And it has been worth every penny. There you have it, folks. Invest in your butt. Next question, Molly. What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? I would say don't be, this is kind of ironic given what I'm sort of doing today, but don't be as afraid of risk. I was very risk averse when I was younger. I still am probably to some extent to the point where, you know, I didn't want to take on any debt whatsoever. I didn't even have a credit card for a very long time because I sort of didn't understand why I would ever you know, needed if I wasn't spending money I didn't have. And as a result, it took me a while to, you know, build a credit score and things like that, just because, you know, you need to do that. Totally. A little bit of risk. All right. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up by chance? I don't think so, honestly. No. (laughs) You didn't pick up pennies that were heads up and never tails down? No, I'm not a very superstitious person, honestly. Yeah, you seem like very pragmatic. (laughs) (laughs) Last one is, do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back and laugh at? Yeah, I mean, I think the credit card thing is really the big one. You know, I just was like, I don't want to spend money that I don't have. So why do I need it? And it's like, well, you do need a credit score to be able to function in this society. Uh, so I laugh at that a little bit. Gotta play the luckily, game. nothing unrecoverable. Yes. <laughs> totally. Molly, this has been an absolute joy, a pleasure. Thank you for all of your wisdom and all of your education and all of your critical thoughts that you share with the world. Now, for the fine folks who are listening, who are, you know, they're listening along and they want to follow, where, where should they go to follow you along on our wonderful World Wide Web? You can find me at mollywhite.net. I'm molly0xfff on Twitter, and I run the website web3isgoinggreat.com. I think you mean on X, not Twitter, Molly. Sorry, my, my mistake. <laughs> Thank you, Molly. I hope you have a wonderful day and may you come on the show again and we talk about the next wonderful clusterfuck of a tech bubble. Take care. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. We This is Stockwatch with Paco DeLeon, a former financial planner. And Amanda Holden, an ex-finance bro and current investment educator. Over the course of a year, we're going to monitor the stock portfolios of three investors. There's Hank, a terrier mix that looks honestly like a coyote, or perhaps the newest wolf of Wall Street. There's Hugo, a black and white cat living in a world full of color, but hopefully not in the red. And last, there's a human baby. Each will invest in a total of $50,000 across five different stock picks, and we're going to monitor all three portfolios. In the end, there can only be one winner of Stockwatch, and every six weeks or so, we'll update you on the competition and teach you about investing along the way. This, this is Stockwatch. Stockwatch. Amanda Holden, Dumpster Doggy, welcome back for another edition of Stockwatch. I'm so thrilled to be chatting with you today. Paco, it's always good to be here. All right. So I'm logged in and I'm looking at these portfolios right now. And the trend continues, Amanda. Tragically, Henry, Hanky, Hank, our lovely little scruff ball doggy, he's down a couple grand. His portfolio is about at $48,000. Hugo is made about 600 bucks. Holding, holding steady at 50600 bucks, But the human baby is pulled ahead once again. Rafa, the human baby, is at $70,000 in his portfolio. So what's going on here? Why is Rafa doing well? And why am I also feeling like when I log in, I'm a genius because my portfolio is going up? But the thing is, there's all these scary headlines in the news about recessions and interest rates. And I have this feeling like the other shoe is going to drop. And it's just, I'm getting some mixed messages here. What's going on? Yeah, there's a lot of mixed messages out there. First, I have to comment on Rafa's performance because this is incredible. He is up 40% since we started mid-March. 
That's pretty incredible returns. How are Rafa's parents doing knowing that this is a fake contest with fake money? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't even want to tell them. I don't even want to tell them because I feel like it's just going to be a blow considering there's also like the writer strike going on and just a lot of craziness and their kid is killing it in this fake stock market game. I feel like I feel like it's kicking them in the in the crotch, you know? Yeah, we don't want to do that. Let's <laughs> let's keep it a secret. But what can we learn from this? What can we all learn from Rafa? And and really even just looking at the stock market in general, you mentioned that you looked at, at your portfolio and it's up for the year. And this might be surprising news to some people is that the U.S. stock market is up, we call it year to date. So, so far this year, 20%. Uh, wow, that's a huge number. Yeah, and so I think it's a a, a a bit less since we started Stockwatch. So maybe it's up 17, 18 percent since, since we began Stockwatch. And so it is interesting to look at the returns of the dog, the cat, and the human baby because the dispersion is quite wide, right? Rafa is doing much, much better, but the dog and the cat are doing significantly worse as compared to the to, to the market. Now, anyone who has invested we say broadly. And what we mean by that is like, let's say you bought an index fund that invests you in a little bit of everything in the U.S. stock market. If you had invested broadly this year, you too are up probably about 20%. And so that's why you feel like a genius, Paco. <laughs> Damn it. I'm not, I'm not saying you're not a genius, but I'm just saying okay. it is kind of one of those rising tide lifts all, all ships <laughs> scenarios. All right. All right. Yeah. And what is strange is that this has happened during a time when people aren't feeling good. And and a big part of understanding why this is happening, I do think that it helps to first start by separating out what is the stock market and what drives the stock market and what is the economy and how do we feel about the economy? And so let's start there, if you don't mind. Let's do it. The economy is, it's everything. It's people. It's your job. It's your rent. It's an unemployment check. It's the cheesy gordita crunch that I had last night for, for dinner. <laughs> Whereas the stock market, it's, it's just that. It's the marketplace for stocks. And so the stock market is a part of the economy, but the stock market is not the economy. Hmm. Next, maybe it would help to clarify the words recession and bear market. The word recession refers to the economy and specifically a shrinking economy. This is what we've been really scared about probably for the last year and a half now. We're hearing a lot about fears of a recession, recession concerns, and this would be an economy shrinking. What would be the the end result of an economy shrinking? The big one would be layoffs, Mm. people losing their jobs. Compare that to a bear market or a bad market, which is a loss of value in the stock market. And so remember, the stock market is just a place where we buy, sell, trade stocks. A stock is an investment in a company. Some people own stocks, some people don't. So not everybody is going to be affected by a bear market in the stock market. A lot more people are going to be affected by a recession in the economy. Now, why it's so important that we separate out these two different concepts in our head is because they require different handling. 
Recession planning means hunkering down. It means beefing up your emergency, emergency savings, securing sources of income. Recession planning is really a practice of conservatism. Hmm. But backpedaling isn't really an appropriate response to a stock market crash. It seems like it is. Our cave people brains see our investments fall in value like they did in 2022. And we want to stop the bleeding. We want to, we're like, somebody kill it. Somebody kill the stock market quick. (laughs) Well, yeah, you throw money in and it feels like you're throwing it into an incinerator because you put in 500 bucks and then you see your balance a few weeks later and you're like, didn't I put, shouldn't it be 500 bucks higher? But it's not. Totally. And it's important to remember that you don't own any less of that company but the market is currently valuing it at less. And when we see this happen, the impulse is to move to a more conservative strategy, sell out, wait for things to get better. But all of this just means selling out of your stocks at their lowest point, which is a very terrible investment strategy. This is not why you buy investments. Importantly, A year like 2022, which is a bad year in the market, a bear market, what it also tells us is that right now we can purchase investments for cheaper than we could six months ago or a year ago. And so, you know, think about that cheesy gordita crunch or think about a house. Would you rather buy a cheesy gordita crunch or a house for cheaper or more expensive? Well... Probably for cheaper. I definitely want to make sure I pay the right amount for the cheesy gordita crunch because I I want to I want to get sick, Amanda. So there's that. Yeah, I get you don't want to pay too little <laughs> exactly. for a cheesy gordita crunch. It's kind of like a tattoo. I don't want the cheapest tattoo. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but in general, you want to buy something for cheaper and not more expensive, and that goes for a share of ownership in a company as well. You want to buy it for cheaper and not more expensive. And so if you have more investing ahead of you than behind you, what you need to see in these moments is opportunity. And so for investors who are in the process of collecting investments and collecting shares, boldness is your best bear market strategy. And so to summarize, to tie it all up with a bow, during bad economies, the best practice is a practice of conservatism. But the best strategy during bad markets is a practice of boldness. And it's hard to carry these two ideas simultaneously. Mm -hmm. I love that. Now I see why I look like a genius here in 2023 is because I kept buying in 2022, even though it felt like, what the hell am I doing this for? So I appreciate you walking us through and helping us understand the difference between the economy and the market, and for encouraging us to buy things when they're on sale. Yeah, absolutely. Always remember that the stock market recovery is not going to be announced in advance. And so it's a bad idea generally to wait until you feel better, because when you feel better, the market will have already come up. Those stock prices, the prices of the investments that you potentially want to own are now higher in in value. And so instead of waiting on the sidelines, what you need to do is just invest consistently, even during the hard times, because that's when you're buying investments for cheaper. And what we want is for you to participate in all upside. 
in order to return the stock market, at least the stock market's average over time, which if we're doing, again, if we're looking at this period in which we've been doing stock watch, that's almost up 20%. Wow. Hot dog. 20%. Hot dog is right. <laughs> well, cold dog if we're looking at Henry the dog's portfolio. But. Hey, badunks. <laughs> All right, Amanda. Any other wisdom, insights, nuggets you want to drop on the listeners this week? You know, back around when we started Stockwatch, I had a conversation with a friend's, friend's boyfriend. And you know, at this time, what he said to me is, I'm going to wait for things to stabilize until I invest. Mm. And that is something that you hear very, very often when the market is, is not performing well. It's also something that you hear when the market is performing well, because remember, it's detached from the economy, but when we are not feeling great from an economic standpoint. And so just like think through this logically, what is the point that he is waiting for? What, what is the stabilization point that is going to get you to invest, right? Like, are you expecting that the market is going to flatline truly for an extended period and that somehow you are miraculously going to feel better about the economy, even though we are surrounded by constant terrible news? Or do you think that the market's going to like ping you and say, hey, bud, Now's the time. I'm thinking about kicking this thing into high gear. Yeah, he's waiting for his intuition maybe to let him know when it's when it's time to throw that money in. Yeah, and intuition is actually what we call in the biz a contraindicator. Huh. So sentiment is what we call a contraindicator. So when you feel bad, it's probably a good time to invest. And when you feel good, it's probably because the market has been going and going and it might be a time to act with a little bit more concern. Now, I say ignore all of that, ignore how you feel, and just stick to a regular practice of investing month in and month out. It's kind of like, I'm so sorry, everyone, for what I'm about to say. It's kind of like <laughs> exercising or going for a walk. We mostly don't want to do that. We just kind of want to hang out and lay around, but it's something you just got to do regularly. And even when you don't feel like it, you're going to feel better afterwards. The, it's going to pay dividends, folks. It's going to pay dividends. And if you if you wait around, what the market is going to do is is embarrass you and you will be left behind. And we don't want that either. We can, You guys, don't embarrass yourselves. That's the moral <laughs> of this week's Stock Watch. Don't embarrass yourselves. Get in, play, participate, look cool. That's it. It's going to get easier. It's going to get easier. All right, Dumpster Doggy. I love you. We love you. Thanks for coming on and educating us. I love you too, Paco. <laughs> Until next time. Until next time, this has been Stockwatch with Paco DeLeon and Amanda Holden. If you'd like to learn more about investing, well, you're in luck. Amanda wants to show you that investing isn't just for Wall Street bros and dusty old dudes. She has a super fun and comprehensive course that's going to leave you feeling completely confident in your ability to build wealth and navigate this overly complicated investing world with all of its terminology. Claim your financial freedom and power. Sign up for her investment education course, Invested Development, today. Head over to amanda-holden.com and click on course, or you can just follow her on Instagram at dumpster.doggy, send her a DM and she'll get you all set up. Of course, I'll also link to the course and everything else in the show notes. Until next time. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like 
by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyeahgroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production, and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you to Henry the dog, Hugo the cat, and Rafa the human baby for their help with this week's segment, Stockwatch, our stock competition. And a big, beautiful thank you to Amanda Holden for teaching us all about investing. To learn more from Amanda, check out her course, Invested Development. Thank you to my friend Jess Brona and Ramsey Yunt for lending their voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. That's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.